Gospel of John, chapter 17. New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When you're there, say it's all about Jesus. All right, John chapter 17, beginning in verse 6 through 19. These are the words of Jesus. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know you in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome this morning to Westside again. Thank you for worshiping with us. If you're joining online, welcome. If you're sitting in a deer stand right now, welcome. With your earbuds in, be as quiet as you can, and maybe you'll get that buck this morning. If you guys have been following along with us, we have started last week our series called The Prayers of Jesus. And this week, we are continuing this series. And before we launch into this morning, I was wondering if you would just bow your head and join me in a word of prayer. I'm going to ask the Lord for some help this morning and to focus and direct our attention to his word and to his good news. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you for your good news. Thank you for your son. We pray this morning that the truth that comes from these pages that came from the mouth of your son would not fall on our ears deaf this morning, uh, but would come to fruition and come to life in our hearts. You made a promise that your word doesn't return to you void, and we believe that promise this morning. Holy Spirit, speak through me from the pages of Scripture, good news and truth, and I pray this morning that your word and your word alone would be preached. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you for that that moment. So we have been in our series called The Prayers of Jesus, and our goal through this series has not just been to aid ourselves in how we can pray better, but to actually look at the life that we believe was the best life lived ever and the greatest person to ever pray ever, that is Jesus Christ. And so we're looking at the prayers that Jesus prayed while he spent his time here on earth, 
And over the next few weeks, we are going to be looking in the month of November uh, at the rest of his, of his prayer in John chapter 17, which is known as the high priestly prayer. But last week, we drew some major implications for us in the opening verses of this prayer from Jesus in John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. And we basically took this away. We said a lot of times that we, when we pray and we approach prayer, we often wonder, am I waking up at the right, am I doing it at the right time of day? Am I praying the right kinds of words? Am I praying for the right people? Am I praying long enough? Um, am I saying the right things and all of that? And we get caught up in how we pray. Um, but really what we learned last week was something that Jesus taught us in John chapter 17 was that we shouldn't focus on how we're praying, uh, but who we are actually praying to. And we came to the conclusion that Jesus came to and said, I am praying to a loving father and I am his beloved child. When we approach God in prayer, we can focus on who we are praying to as God is a loving father and we are his beloved children. And the big idea that we came away with last week was that following Jesus means praying like Jesus. So we understand and know that the prayers of Jesus are valuable and they're not just something that we can imitate and mimic, but we also want to know that they are part of following Jesus. That is why we are launching through this series. And so as we kind of go through the rest of John chapter 17, we want to ask, what did Jesus pray? So we've seen that he understands who he's praying to, that God is his, his loving father and we are his beloved children, that Jesus is his beloved child. But what exactly does Jesus pray? So I'm going to spend a little bit of time in this introduction talking about a high priest. Because um, if you look down at your Bible in John 17, right up there at the top, it should say a high priestly prayer. Look down at your Bible if you've got it in front of you. Does it say high priestly prayer? Okay, awesome. We're reading the same Bible. That's good news. So you may be asking yourself, what on earth is a high priest? And what on earth is a high priestly prayer? And how does one of these priests pray? Well, the history of Israel, God actually delivers Israel out of captivity and out of slavery in Egypt. You guys remember, let my people go. And Moses had a brother named Aaron. God actually appointed a Aaron to be the very first high priest of Israel. Aaron wore these awesome clothes that were not just for him, but were also a, a they were essentially the garments for him and his sons and his son's sons and his grandkids and all of them to wear as the high priests of Israel. And the function and the purpose of a high priest was to go into the holiest place of the tabernacle, the, the tent that they set up to meet with God in, and to pray to him and offer sacrifices to him for the people of Israel. So God saves them out of Egypt, and then God FaceTimes Moses on Mount Sinai and says, here's my rules and here's my laws because I save you, I want you to live this way. Also, give me Aaron. Aaron is going to be this high priest, and his entire generation, generation after generation after him, will be the mouthpiece between me and, and the people of Israel and the people of Israel and me. And so then, uh, so what's the purpose of a high priest? Like if they go into the Holy of Holies right now, offer up these sacrifices, whatever, is that it? Is it just to make sure that we're clean or to make sure that we're praying or whatever? No, the actual full purpose is this, and we are told by God in Exodus 29. He says, I will consecrate or make holy the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and the altar. Aaron also and his sons, generations after, I'll consecrate them to serve me as priests. And here it is. I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God. 
The purpose of the high priest is so that God can dwell with his people, that God will dwell with his people. It's the purpose of the high priest. And so that was the purpose that Aaron served, and then his children after him, they were serving in the tabernacle, Moses' tabernacle, so they'd go into that cool tent, and they'd see God, and they'd pray, and, and they would offer sacrifices and all of that. And then generations down the line, Aaron's great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren were the high priest in Solomon's temple that was actually built and like covered in gold, and they would go into the Holy of Holies and offer up incense and prayers and sacrifices and all of these things. And so we have Aaron, and then we have all the way down to the time of Solomon, and all throughout the history of Israel, these high priests got it wrong from time to time. Um, they were either uh, sacrificing or offering up either their own children or family members or, or things to other gods in the temple, uh, basically desecrating this holy space for God and getting it wrong. Well, thank goodness we have now Jesus is referred to as our high priest. Jesus is the great high priest. He's the only high priest who ever had and ever will get it right, if we want to say it that way. And what this prayer, this high priestly prayer does, it shows Jesus actually praying things that a high priest would pray on behalf of their nation, of Israel, or, or speak on behalf of God as a prophet to the nation. And so Jesus prays this high priestly prayer. And we don't, just have, we don't just have this idea of Jesus being a high priest from this prayer, but we actually have uh, probably Paul, the writer of Hebrews, addressing him as the great high priest since in Hebrews 4. Since then, we have a great high priest. Everybody say, great high priest. Awesome. Good job. Who has passed through the heavens. Everybody say, Jesus. Jesus the Son of God. So Jesus fulfills this role, not just for the people of Israel, but for all of humanity. He is the great high priest who got it right and is the interceding, the intermediary between us and God is Jesus, our great high priest. And so in this prayer, Jesus actually spends time praying for a specific group of people. In the first few verses we saw last week, he prays for himself and the mission of God. And then this week, we see that he actually prays for his disciples, his disciples. Look down at your Bible with me in, in John 17, beginning in verse 6. He says, and listen to all the descriptors of who he's praying for here. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. These are the qualifications of the people that I'm praying for. And if we unpack that a little bit, we'll see that Jesus is praying about his current disciples, the people that followed him and shadowed him very closely for three years while he was doing his ministry and the work in the kingdom of God while he was on this earth. And so what I want to do this morning is take just a little bit of time and, and look at the qualifiers that Jesus uses for a disciple. Like, these are the things that I'm praying for. I'm praying for these people. These are my disciples. Now, granted, this isn't all of what makes up a disciple. It's just part of it in this prayer. But for the sake of this series, I think we could use it as a litmus test to see where we stand in light of discipleship with Jesus Christ. So Jesus is praying for his disciples, and the first thing that Jesus says a disciple does is a disciple receives the word. A disciple receives the word. Look down at your Bible again in verse 7. He says, now they, they know that everything that you have given me is from you, verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. 
I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. Jesus is saying that the disciples that I'm praying for have received a word from me, have received this good news from me that God gave for me to give to them. I think we live in a day and an age where we believe that if we need good news in our life or if we need, if we need something to change or alter the way that we think, we just muster it up ourselves. We find a spark on the inside of us and believe really hard or try really hard or adjust our behavior, and then boom, we have created life-lasting change that doesn't really last more than maybe 10 minutes. We cannot create good news in and of ourselves. It is always something that we receive. Good news comes from God and him alone. The gospels say that every good gift, every good thing, come from God above. And that inside of us, there is nothing good at all apart from what God has given to us. So is the word something that you've received? Have you received the knowledge of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ, in your mind, in your heart? Have you received and known that, yes, I was once lost and now I am found? I was dead in my trespasses and in my sins, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, and made alive together with Christ. Is that something, good news, that you have received? All right, then yes, let's move forward. The second thing Jesus says that a disciple does is a disciple keeps the word. It's not just something that a disciple receives, but it's something that they keep within them. This is like what we said a couple months back when we were going through a series and we were talking about the difference between head knowledge of good news, of theological knowledge, and dropping to heart knowledge. This is the difference between receiving the word and keeping the word. Yes, we, we understand and know that in the beginning, God created everything, and so he is the initiator of everything, and we are the responders, but... Now we know that the word that, that God has given to us, the good news, can drop to our hearts and be something that we really believe, that we really believe. Look in, look in verse 6. It says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Have you kept this good news with you? Some of us have been believers for a really long time, and we've known the good news since we were kids but it's not something that we walk around and truly believe in our hearts as we engage our neighbors and our friends and our family members. That yes, I know that God is good and I know that, that he has saved me, but do I really believe that in my heart? Does that affect the way that I live and the way that I interact with other people? And lastly, the thing that Jesus says as a mark of a disciple is a disciple does the word. Doesn't just receive the word from God, doesn't just keep the word, but does the word. Right? The brother of Jesus echoes this in James. In James 1.22, he says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only. He goes on to say, In deceiving yourselves. This is echoing Jesus' commands at the end of the Sermon on the Mount when he says that if you, anyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who built his house on a good foundation. In the midst of a storm, his house is still standing. He is saying that a disciple is somebody who doesn't just receive and keep the word with them, but it affects the way that they live their lives, how they handle their money, how they speak in arguments to their spouses, how they interact with their family members and friends when there's discourse over politics or religion or, or money or anything like that. It affects the way that we live our lives. So are you somebody who has received the word? Are you somebody who keeps the word? Are you somebody who does the word? Well, what's awesome about this is that the word is not only necessarily like commands. It's not just, it's not just, well, look, he says this in John 17, I've made manifest your name to the people whom you gave me and they have kept your word. 
and they have kept your word. Well, the, the word name and word are kind of interchangeable in this passage because they almost mean the same thing. The good news that, that Jesus is talking about, this word that a disciple receives, keeps, knows, and does, isn't just news. It's actually, it's literally Jesus. It's literally Jesus. The word is literally Jesus, the living word. And John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. We can read it that way as well. This is the good news that God sent. It's not just receiving commands and passages in Scripture, but it's actually receiving Christ. It's actually knowing and keeping Christ and doing and living life as Christ lived life. Frederick Bruner, um, he's got this... Uh, it's, it's thicker than this pulpit. It's a commentary on the book of John. Thanks, Jason, for letting me borrow that. Um, he basically says this about the name of God, uh, or the word name in this passage. He says, name is the Hebrew way of saying what we say in English with the word character. Through Jesus of Nazareth, we have learned the character of no one less than God, which is an unspeakable privilege, an unspeakable privilege. And the writer, and Paul says in Colossians the same thing, that, that, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We see that character in Jesus. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And in Hebrews, he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's nature. So have we received Christ? Litmus test for a disciple in Jesus' prayer. Have you received Christ? Have you received the good news? Do you keep the word? Is it something that's with you on your mind and in your heart on a regular basis? Do you do the word of God? Do you do the commands? Do you do the, the desires and the love of Jesus? And is your life changed in that way? Yes? Well, I have good news for you. Jesus prayed for you. Jesus prayed for you. I don't, I don't know how... like. This is a phrase and this is a saying that is really difficult for us to grasp. Like if I were to say this 2,000 years ago and replace Jesus with God, because they're essentially the exact same thing, and said Jesus prayed for you, God prayed for you, there would be an audible gasp in the room. People would lose their lunch over this because they would, there, there was no like, like holiness and one-on-one -on -one distinction of a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And that is what Jesus offers for us. And Jesus shows us just by praying for his disciples that there is an intimacy there. There is a oneness that exists within the kingdom of God between us and Jesus Christ. So if you're a disciple this morning, Jesus prayed for you. That is good news this morning. So what we're going to look at are the ways that Jesus prayed for his disciples. What did Jesus pray for his disciples? And we see three things in the text, and they're, they're called petitions. It's, it's basically when someone who's praying asks God for something specific, either for themselves or someone else. And so what specifically does Jesus pray for his disciples? And we see three things. The first thing he prays for is their unity. The second thing he prays for is their purity. And the third thing he prays for is their maturity. So let's get right into it. Jesus prays for unity. Jesus prays for their unity. Look down at your Bible in verse 11. In verse 11, he says, Holy Father, this is the second half of verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. There's the character of God. That they may be one. Everybody say one. One, even as we are one. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be unified, they may be one. It's interesting to me that Jesus 
Jesus was there at the foundation of creation. Jesus was in the beginning with God, was God, the living word of God. And Jesus found it necessary to get on his knees and pray before God for the unity of his disciples. Why? Why was the first thing that he prays in this prayer for his disciples hinged around unity? Maybe this will help. This is called the testudo formation. Everybody say testudo. Testudo, good job. It means turtle shell, but testudo sounds way cooler. Um, the Romans actually used this as a fighting technique, and this, this, the testudo formation has been around probably long before the Romans, but they're the ones who made it popular, and, or, or actually made it in history. And the Romans would actually use this not just as a defensive way to fight in a battle, but also offensive ways. This formation allowed the Roman soldiers to use legions of men to literally capture cities, not just stand there while arrows were getting shot at them, but actually advance and move forward as they conquered cities. And the way that it would work, if you look at this picture a little bit closer, it's not every man with a shield directly in front of him, but it's actually off to the side a little bit, so it covers his shoulder and thigh and the soldier next to him, shoulder and thigh from top to bottom. And they are fully encompassed and protected by one another, with one another, which allows them to advance and to move forward. And I wonder if that's the kind of unity that God is, is offering us, that Jesus is praying for us in this. That it would, give us a, it would give us an opportunity to live in a community of those around us who are looking out for one another, protecting one another. I got your back or I got your thigh and your shoulder, if we want to start saying it that way. Or, and be able to move forward in life and encourage one another and to, to make advances, not, not, not just in careers and finances and, and well-being, but for the kingdom of God, man, that we would be able to move forward in Poplar Bluff and in our community groups and in our friends and our families and see people love Christ and see people come to know saving faith in Jesus. That is, made, that is possibly the kind of unity that Jesus is praying for us here. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. And you say, I've been around churches that are extremely uniform and we, it, like everybody believes the same thing and they're all mad about something. Well, just a reminder from last week, unity is not uniformity and oneness is not sameness. It, listen, if you find yourself in a church and everybody's dressed the same way, wearing nice new sneakers, drinking Kool-Aid and taking a nap, you're likely in a cult and not a church. Uniformity is not unity. Oneness is not sameness. Jesus desires for his disciples in the body of his church to be a unified diversity, to be a diversity of people, languages, cultures. That's why we have Alejandra come up and pray for the people of Honduras and give you an opportunity to engage in the good news of the kingdom of God and work gospel mission work and through giving of finances and prayer and all of that because unity happens in diversity among cultures and people and places. And that is what we are praying. That is what Jesus is praying for us as disciples. You know, we, we covered this same, this same idea when we were going through our Axiom series last month. Uh, when we were going through our Axiom series, one of the things that we learned was the goal of our discipleship, the goal of our relationship with Jesus, is to be in unity both with God and with one another. Divine union is what we said. The goal of our discipleship is to be unified. You say, that's great. This is good news. I feel like this is really good head knowledge that I'm receiving and that maybe I can even keep in my heart, but I don't have any way to apply this. How do I apply this unity in my life that Jesus prayed for me? Ephesians tells us, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, 
and the teachers. Those are basically the, the people who stand up front and get a little bit of stage time week after week to encourage people. He gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. If you're in this room right now, raise your hand. Most of us. There's a baby not raising their hand. I'll let it slide. If you're, if you're on the live stream uh, and you're watching right now, raise your hand. I can't see if you're doing that. That's hilarious. Uh, say, I'm a saint. Say it louder. I'm a saint. He gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. If you want to be unified, you have to be involved. If we want to be unified, we have to participate. Look, and what's the work of the ministry that you as saints get to accomplish? It's this. It goes on for the building up of the body of Christ. Just what we've been saying, the building up, the, the spreading of the good news of Jesus, the engagement in the gospel community, mission, good news, kingdom of God that has been given to us. We are building up, and you as the saints have an opportunity to live your lives in such a way that builds up the body of Christ. What happens with preachers and teachers and people who get stage time and worship leaders and all of that, our job is not to do the work of the ministry. It's to equip you. That's why we focus so much on God's word. That's why we focus so much on prayer and focus so much on, on giving God glory and thinking about him rightly and trying to feel him in a deep way is so that we can encourage you and train you to, e to equip you for the work of the ministry so that your lives would reflect the life of Jesus Christ and people would look at you and say, what's going on in your life? Why, why are things so joyful for you? And that brings us to the next, the next point, that unity in the church requires participation from the church. Obviously, when, God is when God's people are unified, God's glorified. That participation is you getting involved in any manner of way. Maybe it's on a Sunday. Maybe it's signing up for, for volunteering at Kidside or, or helping bounce a baby or teach kids about Jesus. Maybe it's signing up for the worship team or helping out in audiovisual or something on a Sunday morning. Maybe it's visiting your neighbor down the street with your community group and feeding them in a time of need. Unity within the church requires participation from the church. And the coolest thing about this, Jesus says, is that when you're unified, it will bring joy. Unity brings joy. Unity brings joy. Look down there in your Bible. He says in verse 13, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus is saying, I am praying these things, and I am speaking this news not just so the kingdom of God can advance, but, because, but, but so that my disciples can experience and live my joy as they live their lives. So unity brings joy. So we see Jesus praying this high priestly prayer. He's praying for his disciples, and he prays for their unity. Second thing that he prays for is their purity. He prays for their purity. Look down at your Bibles in verse 15 and 16. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Don't take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. Um, I think when a lot of us hear the word purity, we think of, there it is, forgot to press the next one. When a lot of us think of the word purity, we think of our holiness, we think of our behavior. 
Um, and listen, I grew up in, a, in an enormous city. I grew up in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, and then I moved to northern Colorado to an enormous college town. This, the last seven, eight years of my life are the first time that I've ever really experienced rural living, living in rural America in Poplar Bluff, Missouri, and Butler County. And I will say that living in this area, there is a, a much larger emphasis on the do's and don'ts of Christianity, the secular versus the sacred of Christianity. And a lot of times we attempt to find our purity through what we do or what we do not do. And we attempt to, to make ourselves righteous and to seem clean based on what we say we are for or what we are against. And there are actually like... There are different ways that we pursue purity, um, and here are just a few of them. The, fir the first way that I believe that, not, and not just in, in southeast Missouri, but, but uh, in the human heart all across the world, I believe one of the ways that we pursue purity is, is we try to separate ourselves from the culture around us. And when I say separate, I essentially mean like, like sever completely from any kind of culture that is not like, like VBS, Awanas, uh, VBS, Awanas, and animal crackers in a church building on a Sunday morning. Like we try to separate ourselves entirely from anything that is not godly. Here, here's an illustration for this. Um, off the, in the Bay of Bengal, off the coast of India, this island exists. It's the only island on Google Maps that is completely white, when, uh, that has no roads or no markings on it or anything um, that is in this area. This island is called the North Sentinel Island, and it is the only island that we know of that has natives on it that have never been influenced by the progression of society. What I mean by that is that they're, they're still in the Stone Age. Like, if you attempt to approach this island, they will kill you, um, literally. There are people who, missionaries and people who have tried to go to this island and try to approach, and they are, and they are, they are slain upon arrival to, to this area. And they have separated themselves, not, not just, maybe not intentionally, but they live on this island that's 25 miles wide, and they will not let anybody outside in this island, so much so that whenever like they fly drones over this over this area or helicopters and take pictures, they're trying to shoot them down with bows and arrows. Like this is a very this is a very real place, and I was blown away by this this morning. Okay, like <laughs> I was reading about this, and I completely changed an illustration because I believe this cap encapsulates it way better than my original illustration. But they are completely separated from society and humanity around them. And I believe that that's, that's one of the ways that we try to address and to pursue our own purity, is that we separate ourselves from the culture that is around us. Whether it's, for my generation, it was Harry Potter books and Eagle CDs. Like I went to this burning, this book burning and CD burning thing when I was growing up in North Texas, and I burned all my Eagle CDs, and I felt terrible because I wanted to listen to the Eagles again, and so I went to the store and I bought the CDs again. Um, but that's a, that's a whole other story. But, uh, Sometimes we fall into the trap of, of being identified only by what we are against, only by things that we are not for, and only by things that we are against. And we create this culture where we separate ourselves entirely from the world, and we create an us versus them mentality. That's one of the ways that we try to pursue purity. The second way is we try to saturate ourselves in the culture. So it's not just separate ourselves entirely. It's to just like fully immerse ourselves in the culture with the hopes of like winning souls for Jesus. Like here's an example. I saw a funny YouTube video a long time ago where they were going to have a youth meeting, serve beer at the door and play Eagles songs all night and have people kick up their, we're never going to do that, by the way, that's not going to happen. Um, but they're saturating themselves in the entire culture with the hope of like being attractive with the hope of drawing people in with things that are attractive in the world and bringing them in that way by saturating themselves in the culture. 
And I wonder if that's just as dangerous. If that's just as dangerous for us to be able to, to, to look in our hearts and to compromise our convictions and the truth and the good news that we know about how we should live kingdom life in order to engage with people. And I think what Jesus is offering us, um, Jesus is offering us a different path. He's saying that we can infiltrate, not separate or saturate for our purity, but to infiltrate, to actually take this good news the good news of Jesus Christ, this word that we've received, kept, and done, and share it in the culture that exists. Not our own version of Christian soccer instead of the regular soccer teams or, or you know, the Christian sewing club instead of the regular sewing club. How, I, where are these illustrations coming from? Is a sewing club a thing? Never mind. But you get what I'm saying, that, we, that God has given us this opportunity and Jesus prays for us to be able to infiltrate the culture, to be able to step into the culture that exists and actually bring good news to that culture. Jesus actually prays like, like, don't take, he prays a couple things for his disciples in terms of infiltrate. The first thing he says is, don't take them out. Like, I, I don't ask that you would take them out. He actually prays that, that you would send them in. He says in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I'm going to send them in. Don't take them out of the world. Like, like, some of us view life and our problems and our troubles, or in terms of, like, discipleship or whatever, we view it like dumb and dumber. Like, like uh, Harry and Lloyd are looking at each other and everything's going wrong. He's like, we've got to get out of this town. Our pets' heads are falling off. We've got no food. We've got no jobs. All that stuff. That... And Jesus is praying the complete opposite. He's like, don't take them out of this world, out of this town. I'm actually sending them in. Why? Why, for what purpose, is Jesus sending them in? He says it in his great commission. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Amen. Say amen. Amen. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Trinity and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you, and I'll be with you through it all. Jesus is saying this is the purpose and the reason that I am sending them into the world to infiltrate the world, to infiltrate those who don't yet know the good news of Jesus Christ, not to saturate or to, inf or to separate, but to infiltrate. So he says that's the purpose, but he also says while you're at it, don't, don't just keep them or don't take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. Keep them from evil while they are in the world. So, so we have this, this dichotomy, this we are in the world engaging with it, but we, are, but we are not like the world. We are in the world because of Jesus while we look like Jesus, while we behave like Jesus, while we think and love like Jesus. So how do we pursue our purity in this? How do we pursue our purity? We pursue purity through prayer, not perfection. We pursue our purity through prayer, not perfection. Um, just to show you what we believe about how perfect an individual is, let's see what Paul writes the Romans. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, can we read these three highlighted words? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you are striving to be perfect, it will never happen because there. But if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, that verse keeps going. All have sinned, but we're justified by his grace. We are justified by God's grace as a gift through Jesus, the redemption that is in him. What makes this so special? Jesus was the only one who was ever perfect. Now, because we are just, because Jesus was perfect, lived that life that we couldn't, died, was buried, was resurrected and ascended into heaven, we are now justified, seen through the lens of Jesus when God looks at us by his grace. 
So our perfection is something that we don't earn. It's actually a gift that is given to us by the only person who can give it to us. Christ is the only one who make God is the only one who makes us like Christ, not us. God is the only one who makes you like Christ. If you're trying to pursue your purity through an avenue outside of prayer, outside of Jesus, it's not going to happen. God is the only one who can make us like the perfectness that his son is. And so, since Jesus is perfect and we pursue our purity through prayer, how do we pray? How do we move forward with this? Hebrews chapter 4 tells us, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. What confession? We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, who doesn't know what it's like to, to live life in a hard way and be tempted. But we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, but hasn't sinned. Jesus is the perfect, perfect person. Jesus is the only perfect person. And so, this verse goes on, we can come to him in prayer. Let us then with confidence draw near, that's prayer language, to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need, in a time when things are difficult and we're in the midst of our sin and failing. We can approach with confidence the one who is perfect and pray for purity. In times where things are great and we're on the highest mountain of our lives we've ever been in, we can approach the only perfect person, Jesus, in prayer and pray for our purity. Jesus prays for our purity, and that is the only way that we can approach and achieve, uh, uh, strive to arrive in any way, shape, or form. Our purity is through prayer and seeking the one who is pure. So Jesus prays for his disciples' unity, and he prays for their purity, but he also prays for their maturity. He prays for their maturity. In verse 17, he says this, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. You see this word sanctify um, a lot in this passage. And it's, uh, I would normally, well, we would normally say it's a big word, but it's only like seven or eight letters. So it's really not that big of a word. And we're going to learn about it this morning. Sanctify means to externally and internally renew. It's over the course of time, we are sanctified, we are renewed inside and outside to be made to look more like Jesus Christ. And one of the things that, that I want to land on with this maturity, sanctification is being made more mature as we grow, grow in Christ, and sanctification is being made more like Christ. And with that, some of us have been Christians for a long time. Some of us have been believers for a very long time, and we have received this word and we've kept it. But we've not, really, we've not really seen any fruit in our lives of being made more mature, of being sanctified, of being looking more like Jesus. Spiritual maturity means emotional maturity. You cannot be a spiritually mature person and be the emotional equivalent of my three-year-old who loses her mind when she only gets half a cookie instead of the whole thing. Spiritual maturity means emotional Maturity. Some of us have been believers for a very long time, but in the moment that somebody challenges us or brings us something from God's word to maybe correct or offer us life in an area of our lives, all we do is get defensive and frustrated or shut down or, or attack the other person or, or run off, separate, saturate, respond in any of those ways. But sanctification, spiritual maturity, actually brings emotional health. 
It brings emotional health and good news in that area of life. So you're saying, great, like this is another area that I just need to work on and do better at. Well, remember, God makes you more like Christ, not you. So this isn't something that you just try and work harder on. It's something that you actually have to submit to. It's something that we actually have to live our lives and, and submit to. Um, let me say it this way. Maturity is the product of humility. Maturity is a product of humility, humbling ourselves and acknowledging that the good news that we have received that is making us more like Christ is news that comes from outside of us, that, go, that comes to us from God. It's not something that we create on our own. It comes from a product of humility. And even more importantly, humility requires submission. Humility requires submission. If you're trying to learn to be a carpenter, and your carpenter master is somebody who you will never allow to speak into your life in a meaningful way, you're never going to learn. If you do not submit to their teaching, then you will never learn to be a better carpenter. Kids, if you do not submit to the love and the good news of your, yes, they're flawed, but, but God has given them to you, your parents. If you do not listen and submit to them, you will never learn the lessons that God has given them to give to you. Who do we submit to as disciples? Jesus. If we want to pray like Jesus and become more like Jesus and be sanctified in him, we have to submit to him. We have to submit to Jesus, the living word. Humility requires submission. I'm going to close with a quote from uh, Mark Jones. He, he wrote this book called The Prayers of Jesus that I've been reading as I've been preparing for this sermon. And um, he talks about our sanctification in God through Jesus Christ being more than just works in our own effort. He says, Jesus, as the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, desires that his disciples be sanctified, not in the abstract through simply doing some undefined good and not doing some evil. Instead, he seeks their sanctification by the truth that comes from God and through Christ and his word. Christ is the content of the word of God. Christ is the content. Christ is the message. Christ is the good news. And so, what's the big idea of this this morning? What's the big idea for us in our prayer? If we want to pray like Jesus, it means we got to submit to him. Praying like Jesus means submitting to Jesus. You want to pray stronger prayers and pray, pray prayers that are more like Jesus? Submit to the way that Jesus prays. And don't just use it as a template. We have to submit to the way that he lives his life. We have to submit to his lordship and his kingship over our lives. We submit and bow down to the name of Jesus, the living word. And then we pray like Jesus. We submit first and then we pray. So how does this change the way that I pray? Well, we've got a few questions that we want to give for you to focus on and maybe reflect on throughout the week or even this morning as we respond in song. The first one is this. Who is someone I will pray for like Jesus prayed for me? One person that you can pray for, for their unity with the body of Christ, for their purity, for their maturity, or maybe just for them to know Jesus. Dads, maybe it's sitting down on a nightly basis with your wife and with your kids and praying for them and your family in the way that Jesus prayed for you. 
about this one? Am I seeking purity through perfection or through prayer? Am I seeking purity in my life through the, through the outward appearance of who I am, through what I do or do not do, what I'm against or what I'm for? Or am I seeking purity in my life by running to the only pure person, the only pure person that is Jesus Christ in prayer? Lastly, am I more mature Christ follower now than I was a year ago? Has there been sanctification, an internal and an external renewal in my life as a product of submitting and loving Jesus in the word? Would you stand this morning? I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 10 and read of the good news that prayer offers for us. And then we are going to come to the Lord in prayer and pray the Lord's prayer together. Listen to these words from Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Can we go confidently now to the throne of grace and pray as our Lord Jesus taught us to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this good news and your word. Thank you for the opportunity to have a great high priest who got it right. To be able to come to you confidently in prayer because your son was perfect in ways we could never be. Help us pray more like you. Holy Spirit, help us to submit to Christ. In moments where we do not, in moments when we should, help us. We ask it all in the mighty and the living name of our perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.